Amen, amen, amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter 15 as we continue to look at the life of Abram or Abraham. We've uh, already covered so much ground. The Lord calling Abram out of his homeland of Ur of the Chaldeans, which was ancient Babylon, bringing him into the land of Canaan, making his promises to Abram and to his descendants, giving him the hope that there would one day be one born of, the, of a descendant of Abraham's own offspring that would be the blessing to all nations. Of course, we know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've just looked at so much about Abram and his relationship with Lot and his rescue of Lot. And we met Melchizedek along the way. And last week we looked at this central, essential um, belief that really runs throughout all of Scripture that the just will live by faith, the righteous will live by faith. And we talked a lot last week about what that, what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith? In God and to exercise faith and, and to be justified before God. So we, we really dove in deep last week. And now we're going to get to a part of the uh, life of Abraham that I feel like is um, very, very interesting and very important. And that is that is the idea of the promised land, the promised land. So um, if you have your copy, if you have a copy of God's word, we're going to be in Genesis 15 verses seven through the end of the chapter. So I'm just going to read that. I'm going to go ahead and, and just read that to us to uh, set the context this morning as we look at this passage together. Genesis 15, 7 through 21. This is the promised land. Okay. Verse 7 says this. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half. He laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
So here we see a fascinating passage. There's just so many different things going on in here. And I wanted to really focus today on the concept of the promised land. What is land? To many people, land is beauty. It's freedom. Land is labor. Anybody out there own a piece of land? Take some work, right? You got to work on it. Keep it up. Take care of it. Land is provision. You know, we, we live in a, in a unique time in history, unique generation. I mean, if you think about it, just in the last, I don't know, a couple hundred years, probably, not even really that long, in order for a family to eat, they had to grow their what? They had to grow their own food. There are kids that have grown up, and I'm one of them, that has no, no concept of what, I mean, I, I know now, obviously I know what that means now, but I mean, as a kid growing up, you just go to the what? Go to the grocery store. It's all there. Where'd it come from? Somebody had to grow it from the land. So land is, is, is something that is essential to the human experiment, experience, and yet here we are today living in the land of abundance, the United States of America, and we really, a lot, there's a generation growing up that really wouldn't know how to grow their own food if they had to. There's really a, a lack of appreciation about understanding the, the necessity of having a piece of land. Land is provision. Land is protection. Land is prosperity. Land is peace. My family and I had a chance this past weekend to go out onto some of uh, on my wife's family. She, they have some land um, down around Arcabutla Lake down in Mississippi. And we went out there this past weekend and just camped out and just sat and just did nothing, just listened. And it's very what? Peaceful. No phones ringing. Not the hustle and bustle of life around you. No televisions blaring. Land is peace. Land is rest. Land is family. Land is legacy. Land is identity. Land is livelihood. Land is home. It's been said that the best thing you'll ever own in life is a piece of land. They're not making any more of it, are they? It's the one commodity in life. It, you're not, God's not making any more land. Whatever's here is here, and you better hope that you might have a piece of it. And that's what I want us to think about today, because I think that there has been a, an unfortunate idea that has really pervaded the church and, and that idea is that we're getting ready to go to heaven and heaven is like clouds and it's spirits and it's like ghosts it's like ethereal it's non-physical we think about heaven as being this place where we go where we get rid of these bodies and we get out of the material part of the universe and we go to be these floating around ghosts in heaven and that's what heaven is all about guys I'm telling you that is not the idea of heaven it's not. There is some sense of physicality, tangibility to even when Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians that even when we shed these temporary tents, these bodies, and we die and the body goes into the ground, we have some type of a spiritual body. We have a spiritual body. I don't know exactly what that looks like or what that is, but there is such thing as a spiritual body. We know that God and the angels can manifest and do manifest in physical form. We know that angels eat food. There's bread called the bread of angels that came down from heaven. We called it what? Manna. Did you know angels eat and drink and compose music? 
And, but, they, but in our mind, we've kind of made these angels out to be these, these ghostly spiritual creatures that are somewhere out in this ethereal universe somewhere just floating around and flying around and flapping their wings. And that is not the biblical picture of the kingdom. There's a physicality to it. And there's something about who we are as human beings that will forever be connected to this land, to the earth. And let me tell you why. Because in the beginning, when God decided he was going to create beings in his own image, he took the what? He took the dirt, the earth. It's called Adamah. Do you know the word Adam for man and the word Adamah, which is the earth or the dirt or the land, are basically the same root word. God created us out of the what? Out of the ground, out of the earth. So our physical bodies are made from this earth. That's who we are. This is our home, the land, the earth, the dirt. This is our home. This is where we were meant to live. And guess what? This is where we're going to live for how long? Forever. We will inherit the earth. We will inherit the land. We will be part of this place called earth forever and ever and ever because that's who we are as image bearers of the one true God. So, so I want you to really kind of help, I want to help you try to begin thinking about the land today, not as just something temporary, but something what? Permanent. Permanent. When Jesus comes back, he doesn't explode the earth. The earth doesn't explode like the Death Star in Star Wars. It doesn't just go boom and then he makes a new one. No. No, that's not what happens. He recreates what? This earth. He recreates this very planet. It's never going away. And we will inherit the land, the earth, forever and ever. So we're made from the earth. We live on the earth. We eat from the earth. And one day we will all return to the earth. From dust we were made, and to dust we shall return. But that's not the end of the story. Because God has promised us more. And that promise is connected to the promise that he made right here to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. And so I want to show you guys how important the promised land is to you and to me. So I have three points I want to, I want to kind of touch on today. And the first one, as we look at this passage here in Genesis 15, is, is that the Lord cut a covenant, okay? If you're, if you're a note taker, you may have an outline if you look at your bulletin, but you can fill in these blanks. But the Lord, he cut a covenant with Abram, and he distinctly, now this is important, God himself bound, he bound himself to the promised land, and he says, this is my treasured possession forever. So it's not that just God has given Abram and his descendants a promise that this will be our land, your land, but it's God's land. Now, we know God owns the whole earth, right? I'm not saying God isn't the, the Lord over all creation. Yes, he created all of it. But he also has bound himself uniquely to a specific territory, a plot of land, a piece of real estate on the earth. And that is what we're going to look at today. He cut a covenant. So what's going on here? You know, you read this and you're like, what is it, man? 
a heifer, a goat, a ram. What is this business about? You're cutting these animals in two, and you put one animal on this side. They, they think most of the time you would have done this in some type of a low-lawing trough or a ditch or something like that. So you're cutting these animals in half, okay? This is gruesome stuff, right? I mean, people, again, that never been to the store before don't understand when you go buy meat at the store, that animal had to be what? killed somewhere its blood had to be shed so that you could eat it right but we don't understand those things but if you've ever killed your own food and had to clean your own deer or cut your own cattle or whatever it may you understand it's a very gory bloody process right so the lord's like we're going to cut these animals and we're going to place them on, on each side of this of this walkway basically and so the blood of these animals would have been pouring out and it would have been a gruesome scene what is this all about well this is an ancient ritual and this is something that we need to understand as uh, students of the Bible, is that let me, let me give you a very modern-day illustration, okay? And I know this is nowhere near compared to what they, they went through here because Abram and the, the Lord himself are cutting a deal. They're making a contract, okay? How many of you have ever closed on a house before? Okay, you make an offer, offer stands, a verbal agreement takes place, but is that, that house is not, that transaction is not complete until you get to what? closing and you it's signing day and you sit down at a table with an attorney or whoever it may be and you and the other party and you just sign your life away right you sign like a million papers and, and you know after the 31st paper you're like I don't even know what this is I don't care just give it give it to me right just want to sign it that contract that covenant is not official until you what until you sign in ancient days, they weren't signing contracts in that way. You had a different way of going about making a contract with another party. You would do something called cut a what? A covenant. Cut a contract. And literally, there had to be, it was a blood oath. This is why Abram and, and, and the, the Lord are going through this process. Because remember, God had made these promises to Abram repeatedly up until this point. And now look at what Abram says. He says, but Lord, how am I to know that I will possess it? In other words, Lord, I've heard you made these promises and I believed it because we know Abram believed God. Last week he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we know he believed, but he's saying, what's Abram really saying right here? He's saying, Lord, when are we going to sign the papers? When are we going to make it what? Official. Well, there was a process to go through in order to make it official. It was like signing the contract. So you would take two parties you would cut. Now, typically in ancient ritual, both parties, they would cut the animals in two, and both parties would walk together through the animals. So what would that communicate? I've made a promise. This person's made a promise. We're making a promise to uphold both ends of this contract. We're making a promise to, up to uphold both ends of the deal. And why, why the animals? Why the blood? Because in that symbolism of the animals that have given their life, they have, been, they have been killed, they have been cut in two, you were saying when you pass through these two animal pieces, you were saying, if I do not uphold my end of the bargain, then I am liable to death just like one of these what? Animals. In other words, I give my word to uphold one my end of the bargain, and if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain, I'm just as good as dead. I deserve to be killed. It's a blood oath. It's, in other words, it's serious. It's a man's word. He made a promise. He's going to do what he promised to do. So that's what's happening here. 
But here's something unique about this particular covenant that was cut between the Lord and Abram. Abram doesn't pass through the pieces. He's over here asleep. There's a deep sleep. I mean, he's like paralyzed. I don't, I don't know. It says a deep terror, dread fell upon him. God showed up in some type of form. And we see Abram is not walking with the Lord through the pieces. But the contract is between who? Abram and the Lord. Those are the two parties involved. And yet only one person passes through the pieces. Who passes through the pieces? God does. So what does that mean? God is saying that I'm going to uphold both ends of this contract even if my life what? Depends upon it. God's saying, Abram, I'm making a promise to you. And normally you would be walking through this with me to uphold your end of the bargain. But I'm not even going to ask you to walk through it because I'm going to make a promise that I'm going to keep both sides, both ends of this agreement, both terms of this contract. And if I don't do this, then I'm as just as good as dead like these animals. Now, ironically, we're going to see here in a little while. We get through this story a little bit more. I'll go ahead and give a little bit of my message away. Is that ironically, his life did depend upon it. Because the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did break covenant with the Lord. They failed. Let me, let me rephrase that. We failed to uphold our end of the what? Of the promise, of the covenant. And his life did depend on it. And we're going to see how that played out a little bit later through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that kind of sets the, the stage for what's happening here. Now, what's the deal about the smoking pot and the flaming torch? And I know you can go and read all kind of different interpretations about that. I'm going to keep it very simple to you. Why does God do this and appear in, in symbols and different things like that? Basically, when we see the manifest presence of God, there are almost always two things associated with his presence. There's a cloud and there's what? Fire. Fire and cloud. Cloud by day, fire by night. Those are the things that God is He's manifesting in this smoking fire pot, the smoke, this cloud, and this flaming torch. So it's, his, it's just his presence. That's really all that's going on right here when it comes to that part of the covenant and so that's what's happening here and in Genesis 13 if you remember uh, and I, you don't have to turn back there but remember the Lord had already shown Abram the land okay so when Lot decided he was going to go to Sodom and go you know move his people there toward the, the the plain in the valley of Sodom he told Abram he said lift up your eyes look from the place you are northward southward eastward and westward and again in all four, four cardinal directions of the compass for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. How long is forever? It says forever. Okay. You're going to see why that's important as well later on down the road. And then he told Abram, he said, arise and walk through the length and breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram, he is a nomad. He's traveling with his family. They're living in tents and he's walking all throughout the land. Okay. And he, he's walking the boundary basically. Of the land. Now I want to. I don't know. Did did y'all get that image for me? Okay. I want to show an image real quick on the on the uh, on the screen. So can you guys see that? Um, 
I'm a, I'm a big geography person. I love maps and things like that. But So you can see the little yellow sliver where it says Jerusalem number two right there. That little bitty yellow sliver. That's basically the land of Israel as it stands today. So when, when the Jewish people who are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... They finally did come back to the land after World War II. Well, they were already coming back to the land. But after World War II, 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn. Tremendous prophetic significance about that moment in history, okay? But they did not occupy the whole land. They only occupy a small sliver of what God promised to who? To Abraham, okay? Even under King David... And King Solomon, when the, when the kingdom of Israel was at its greatest uh, point in history, when it, had, when it had conquered more land than any other point in history, it did not even come close to what the boundaries of the real promised land are that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants forever. So you can see, and again, these maps can be a little bit, uh, they can be interpreted differently, but basically the, the, the border to the east would be the Euphrates River. It runs all the way up from almost Turkey all the way down to the Persian Gulf. The western border is the Mediterranean Sea. The southern border, some d debate you know, whether it's the Nile River all the way down in Egypt, or, but it's at least part of Egypt. We know that much. And then the southern border goes all the way back across there to the edge of the Euphrates River. Guys, this is an enormous territory. If you were to translate that today, the Yehovah gave Abram and his descendants all of the land of modern Israel, which is in dispute even to this, to this day, including the land of the Palestinians, which is the West Bank and Gaza, all the land of the nation of Jordan, Parts of Egypt, parts of Syria, Iraq, and parts of Saudi Arabia. So we know that the, the, the total or the complete fulfillment of the inheritance of this land has not happened yet, even at the height of the nation of Israel, as I said before, under David and Solomon. So I want you guys to get this image in your head right here, because I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you are a believer in Jesus today, and you are... The Bible says that those of us who are in Christ, we are sons of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. You know what that means? You are Abraham. We are God's offspring. We are Abraham's offspring. Not from a physical descent, but we've been grafted into this people, this covenant people of God, spiritually speaking. So what does that mean? Let me, let me say this again to you. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. What does that mean? If you are a child of Abraham in the room today, then whose land is that? It's your land. You have a plot. You have a place on the map that you can call yours. Now, we're going to see why we're not there yet and how to, how to live as we're waiting for that day to be fulfilled. But I want you all to understand that the kingdom of heaven is not us flying and floating on the clouds in 10,000 years of kumbaya on the harp. That's not heaven. So many people, I think, are saying, I don't want to spend 10,000 years floating on a cloud. I don't either. I want to have my hands in the what? In the dirt. I want to build something. I want to go to work for the Lord. 
I want to be part of the new heavens and the new earth where we're recreating something with him as he creates something even more beautiful than we could ever possibly imagine. He gives us a role to play in that. Something here on the earth that's part of the physical, tangible reality that who we are as human beings. We desire to have this kind of an experience and existence, not just temporarily, but for how long? Forever, permanently, guys. That's what I'm trying to help you understand. This is what we get to look forward to. It's amazing when we think about it. Number two, the promised land. Okay, so that little, that little uh, sliver right there, you, you, you can take the, the image down, Miss Brenda. Thank you for that. So that sliver or that piece of land, at least if we call that the promised land, even at its greatest uh, boundary, this is something important. It is the spiritual and geographical epicenter of the earth and here's here's something that you that we cannot deny it's the most sought after and fought over piece of real estate in the universe have you ever wondered why any of us care what's going on in israel it's no bigger than new jersey it's insignificant on the scheme, I mean, you're talking about Russia. I mean, what's in the news today? Russia and Ukraine, the United States and China, all the European Union, all of these big grand nations that are all vying for power in the world today. Yet, you know where the eyes of the, most of the world, the people that are really paying attention to what's happening and the eyes of God and his people, you know where our eyes are? They're fixed right there on that little bitty piece of land, the land of Israel. Have you ever wondered why? What's so special about that? Why do so many people want to fight over that little piece of land? Matter of fact, I've been to Israel. Amazing trip. Been in the land. Most of it, if it weren't for the, the, the repopulation of the land through, through the Jewish people, and they have really done a great job bringing agriculture and irrigation and, and, and planted trees and vineyards, and they've brought some greenery back to the land. But, you know, if you had gone there about 200 years ago, do you know what that land was? A desert place. Desolate. Who wants that? Nobody's going to be fighting for a big old empty, desolate desert. There's got to be something spiritual going on in that place. In order for so many people to be at odds and there would be so much hostility and they'd be fighting over this piece of property. And guess what? They're going to be fighting all the way to the very end. Will there be peace in the Middle East? There will be one day. Until the Prince of Peace comes. Until the Prince of Peace comes. There's going to be a perceived peace one day, too. We're told that as well. That's going to be a deceptive peace. We don't know how all that's going to work out. But there will be somebody who's able to kind of bring some sense of peace, and everybody's going to think, wow, this is it. Like, we've never had real peace in the, in the Middle East before. But there's not going to be true, lasting peace until the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, comes back Ezekiel says this is Jerusalem I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her Jerusalem is the center of the earth and it is basically the focus of God's redemptive plan and so as I said before in 1948 we saw the fig tree 
budding again because Jesus said, learn a lesson from the fig tree. When you see the signs of these things happening, when the leaves begin to put forth buds, you know that summer is right around the corner. He said, in the same way, when you see all of these things taking place, he said, you know my return is near. Now, let me say what I, let me, let me un, make sure you understand what I'm saying right here. For 1900 years, guys, there were no there was no presence of an, a descendant, very, very little, if at all, presence of a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that land. For 1,900 years, do you know what most Bible scholars and even Jews believe? It's over. Like, there's no hope. Like, all the promises that we read in, in the scriptures about the people coming back to the land, I guess God's just not going to deliver. I guess it's just not going to what? It's not going to happen. And then all of a sudden, after the worst atrocity to the Jewish people the world's ever seen, the Holocaust, just all of a sudden, we see the nation reborn in 1948. And now there are more Jews, there are more descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in that land than anywhere else on the planet. You can't tell me that's not a prophetic event. There's something big happening. Why was there nobody in the land for 1,900 years? It was desolate. And then all of a sudden, now we have a nation of Israel. Now we have the Jewish people returning to the land. Because, guys, there's something big happening. And this is the epicenter of the earth. When you read your Bible, everything that happens in your Bible took place within the vicinity of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. Everything. What does that mean? It means this book right here ain't about America. We're Americans, right? We think everything's what? Everything's about us. No, it's not. This book is Israel-centric. This book is Jerusalem-centric. It's all, it all started there, and it's all what? It's all going to end there. This is where we need to focus our, our heart's attention. There's something big about this piece of property. It is the most valuable piece of real estate on the planet. Let me give you just a few things that happened in the land of Israel. It's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sojourned. It's where Moses and Joshua led the children of Israel into the conquest of their home, of the Holy Land. It's where the temple was built and all the prophets and priests and kings lived and served God. It's where Jesus, the Messiah, was born, where he lived, where he was crucified, where he was resurrected, and where he ascended. It's where the Holy Spirit was poured out to the people on the day of Pentecost. It's where the dragon, the enemy, will one day amass armies of hell to wage war against Jesus when he returns in glory to reclaim his throne. This is the center of the spiritual what? Spiritual battle is the, is the center. We need to understand that because we have a role to play. We have a part to play, as you'll see here in a minute. And so let's talk real quick. Uh, I need to, I, I really want to spend a minute here because I think it's, it's important. So there are so many scriptures I could, I could share with you about the Lord. The Lord has attached himself to that land. I want to give you one. Psalm 132, just listen to this. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Who's speaking there? The Lord. He's saying that's the place I have chosen for my own dwelling place. And he says, this is my resting place for how long? Forever. So it's he, he, the Lord has attached himself to that place. 
That's very important. So just like the enemy always does, anything that God claims for his own, he wants to what? He wants to take it. He wants to steal it. That's why there's so much hostility. That's why there's so much animosity surrounding that, that one little piece of property there in the Middle East because the enemy has always been after what God has. And so let me just summarize some things here for you because this is very important to the big prophetic picture of what we are seeing happen. Okay? Stay with me. The Lord tells Abram in this verse, in this passage, he says, your people, your descendants are going to go to another country. You're going to sojourn into another nation. And you're going to be there for how long? 400 years. Okay, does anybody know what nation that was? It was Egypt. So the Lord is telling Abram, remember, this is before the Exodus. He's saying, Abram, I promise I'm going to give you the land and your descendants. You're going to get it one day. But before any of this stuff happens, your people are going to go down into Egypt. That's what the whole story of Joseph going to Egypt, that's what the whole story is about. They're going to be there for how long? 400 years. But then I'm going to judge that nation, which God did, and I'm going to bring my people out, which he did. Again, pass through the Red Sea, all that. That's the Exodus story. And he says they're going to come out with great what? Possessions. And then I'm going to bring them back where? To this land. Okay? Now, in the meantime, something else is going to be happening. He says... For 400 years, your people are going to be in Egypt until the fullness, the full iniquity of the Amorites is complete. Now, what is that all about? Let me try to break it down to you. Who wants that land as much as anybody? The devil does. Why does he want that land? Because who, who's claimed it? God has. And God's promised to give it to who? To us, to his people. So the devil wants to steal and kill and destroy and take everything that God has. So for 400 years, the Lord is like, okay, you got to understand, Abram, you're going to be sojourning in Egypt for 400 years. In the meantime, the enemy is going to be up to something as well. For that same amount of time, for 400 years, these people called the Amorites are going to be setting up camp where? Right in that land. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites are giants, giant clans. Now, if you're here today and this is the first time you've heard anything about this, I'm sorry. You've got to open your mind to what's happening here in the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord made a declaration. He says, I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He says, you will crush his head, but he will bruise your what? Your heel. There is a seed war that's been going on from the very beginning. So Satan knows, he knows the promise that he made to Abraham. So he has 400 years to prepare for when the Israelites are going to come out of Egypt. And Satan's like, yeah, let them try to take the land if they can. Because he's going to already have set up and planted in that land clans of people, guys, who are not human. They're not. These are not normal people. These are wicked people. These are perverse people. But the most thing, the biggest thing you need to re realize about these Amorites, Amorite is just a generic term for the people who were living in the land when Israel came to conquer the promised land. These were not normal human beings. These were what? These were giants. They were a hybrid race of people. 
You ever heard this before? I'm sorry if you're just now being introduced, but let me tell you why it's important. Let me tell you why. I had an atheist come up to me one day, and he, and he opened the Bible, and he showed me Joshua, where the Lord commanded Joshua and his people, the people of Israel, to go into the promised land. And he said, Joshua, when you go into the promised land and you conquer the people who were there, he says, you kill everybody, men, women, and children. He said, your God is a God of genocide. How do you explain that? Guess what? I didn't have an answer because I had no idea what was going on. God did not call Joshua and the Israelites to go into the promised land and kill men, women, and children because he's a, God, a genocidal maniac. Do you know why God told Joshua and the Israelites to go into the promised land and not leave anyone alive? Do not let them breathe. Kill every person in these Amorite giant clans, men, women, and children. Let me tell you why. Because they were not fully human. They were not fully human. They were hybrids. They were mixed. They were a mixed breed of people. They were giants. They were not made in the image of God. They were made in something else. Satanic, demonic image. Did you know that salvation is only for the sons of Adam? Did you know that only mankind is eligible for salvation? Did you know that? We are the ones that Jesus Christ came to what? He came to save mankind. He did not come to save these demonic, hybridized, monster-looking creatures, giant creatures, whatever they were. They were corrupted. They were genetically corrupted giant clans living in the land. So now you understand it's the same thing that was happening in the days of Noah before the flood. Why did God wipe out every living thing on the earth during the days of Noah? Because the same thing was happening. The same exact thing was happening. He said, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them all off the face of the earth because they were not fully human, guys. So when God tells Joshua and the Israelites to go into the promised land and to kill the Amorites, he says, you do not leave anyone alive. Were they spiritually wicked people? Absolutely. Were they doing all kinds of heinous and profane things? Yes, they were sacrificing children, all kinds of immorality. You name it. They were doing the worst of the worst things. But that's not the main reason why God said kill them all. It's because, guys, this is the iniquity of the Amorites. So Satan was there setting up his attempt to kill God's people before they ever even what? Before they ever even arrived. 400 years. 400 years for that time. And at that point, when they reached a point, apparently they crossed a threshold where God said, okay, now it's time to judge them. Now I'm going to carry out no mercy on these people. And that's the whole story of Joshua and the Israelites going in to conquer the promised land. Now, if you've never heard that before, guys, you need to wake up because this is exactly what is at stake. It is a spiritual battle. Satan was up to something for 400 years. God already knew what was going to happen. And he used Joshua and the Israelites to judge those giant clans. And I, I could share hours of teaching about what that was really like in the scriptures. But I don't have time to go into that right now. But we need to understand that because God's not just killing men, women, and children for no reason. He's not committing what? Genocide. That's not what's happening here. Okay? We need to know that. Now, I've got to finish right here. My last point. Understanding this big picture. Okay? I want you to know this. The Lord promised one day that he will gather all of his people from exile 
He will bring us back home and give us this land as an everlasting possession in the kingdom of Christ. In the kingdom of Christ. This has not happened yet. Let me give you just a couple of scriptures so that you can understand. This applies to you and to me. The first thing that you need to understand is that this is a physical, literal gathering that we will inherit the land, that we will dwell with the Lord. And guys, let me just cut to the chase. This happens on the day the Lord Jesus returns. He will give us resurrected what? Resurrected bodies. Remember, from, from dust we were made to dust shall we, we shall return. Our bodies are going to be in the dirt of the ground until Jesus returns to give us new what? New resurrected bodies. And he's going to bring all of his people from all over, from the four corners of the earth, right? He's going to bring us all together to one place. He's going to gather us together to one place. It's the land of Israel. Because he's the king of Israel. And his throne is in Jerusalem. Because he's chosen that to be his resting place, his dwelling place for how long? Forever. And there will be judgment. And he will destroy the enemies of uh, his enemies, the, the dragon and the armies and all the things. The battle of Armageddon. I know you, you've heard me teach on that plenty of times. But this is the day that we get to inherit the land. So you're going to get a piece of real estate in the promised land, in the kingdom to come. So now you start to understand what the Lord Jesus meant when he said things like this. In my father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again and I will take you to be with myself so that where I am, you may be also. Amen. Guys, that is not some promise about a heavenly mansion. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to have something in heaven in the, until this day happens. Yeah, we're going to have a dwelling place in heaven. Jesus is not necessarily talking about that. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about giving us our inheritance where? In the earth. In the promised land. We're going to get a portion of that. We are co-inheritors with Jesus. We're, we are joint heirs is what the scripture says. So everything that Jesus inherits, he gives it to what? He turns around and gives it to us. We get a part of that. We get a piece of that. Now, there's one condition. One condition as I wrap this up. It's the same thing that we've been talking about through this whole study with Abraham. Because did you know that as God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, heading to the what? Promised land. He wanted to give them the land right then. But you know what? There was a generation that had to wander in the desert, how long? 40 years, and they died in the desert. Did they get to inherit the land? Why not? Because of unbelief. They didn't believe God. That's the only thing keeping you from inheriting your land, this land one day. It's unbelief. If you want to enter into that rest, if you want to enter into God's kingdom, there's one condition there always has been. You have to what? You have to believe. Are there giants facing us today? Absolutely. Are there things standing in the way of our faith? Absolutely. 
the greatest enemy of all, let's just talk about that, is death. We have to believe that when we die, and all of us will, right? We're going to die. We have to believe that that's not the end. That that's not it. That's not game over. Lights out. It's all said and done. There is nothing more after that. We believe by faith. I didn't see Jesus resurrected from the grave. I did not physically see him with my own eyes, but I know he what? I know he's been risen. I know he's alive because I met him and he lives in me and I have a relationship with him. And I believe the testimony of the scriptures that said Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so therefore, because he's been raised from the dead, he will also give me a new what? He'll give me a new body one day. He's going to raise my body up from the grave one day. And I believe that by what? Faith. By faith, there's no greater enemy to us than death. That's what the scripture says. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Is death. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There's a giant enemy looming, glaring us, staring us down. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. Do you believe that you're going to inherit the promised land one day? That's going to be a wonderful day of day of rest. A day of peace. All the things that I shared at the beginning, prosperity, provision, family, blessing, joy. There's going to be work. We get to do things. We get to build things. We get to work with our hands. We get to get our hands dirty. We get to plant gardens. We get to grow food. We get to have vineyards and drink wine for you Southern Baptists out there. (laughs) It's going to be good. I promise you. It's going to be a good time, guys. It's not 10,000 years of kumbaya hovering in some cloud with a baby fat cherub. That's not heaven. I'm sorry. So I'm going to ask our praise team to come up. And I just want to challenge you with one more verse. As, as, as our team comes up, we're going to sing that song Zion again. And I want you to sing it differently this time. I want you to think about this hope and this promise that there's coming a day when God's going to bring us into that land. He's going to gather us together with him in the land. He's going to give you a piece of heaven. I think all of us would be satisfied just saying, you know what, I just want to be in the kingdom. I just want a piece piece of my own land. I want to plant my own garden. I want to be in the kingdom. I want to serve God. I want to be part of what he's doing. I just want a little piece of heaven. Guess what, guys? He's giving it to you. And so as I close this message, I'm just going to give you your, your challenge today, your application, because listen, here's the reality. We're not in the land today. We're exiles. I love the United States of America. This is not my home. It's not. I'm a citizen of another nation. My citizenship first is in the kingdom of God. That's what I'm waiting for. That's what I'm hoping in. That's what I'm looking forward to. I thank God for the United States of America. But guys, this is not my home. And so as we think about these things, I want you to think about we are still living in exile. Okay? So what do we do while we stay in exile until that day? Either until we go to be with the Lord or he comes back to be here. Let us look forward to the day when we inherit the land to be at home with him forever. I'm going to read one verse and we're going to sing. Hebrews chapter 11, listen to what it says. Hebrews 11, by faith, 
Abram went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He was heirs with him of the same promise. And we are heirs with him too, remember? We're children of Abraham. We're heirs. For he, Abram, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Are you seeking a homeland today? Are you confident that God has prepared for you a place? That Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for who? For you. In my Father's house, in my Father's kingdom are many what? Many mansions. Do you have one waiting for you? This is what we get, guys. And in the meantime, as we live in exile and we're still bound in this old world and the system and these mortal bodies and all of the things, we look forward by faith just like Abraham did, waiting for that day, hoping for that day, living as people who are built, who are created for the kingdom, living as citizens of God's kingdom. That's what the promised land is all about. Amen? Amen. So I want everybody to just bow your heads with me. I'm going to hop over here on the on the piano for a minute, and we're going to sing that song one more time. So would you bow as we pray together? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the, the hope and the promise that we have in Jesus. The one who crushes the head of the snake, who gives us a, a, an inheritance that will be forever ours, who gives us a family, a home, and Lord has promised to make a place for us in his kingdom, for all who would believe in him, Lord. And so my hope and my prayer today, Lord, is that we would get our hearts and minds fixed and set on you and what you have in store for us. And that we would live our lives, even though, Lord, we're still in exile, that we would live our lives in a way that honors you, that, that as a kingdom citizen, that, that gives you glory, and that we would share this good news, share this hope of heaven, share the reality of the resurrection with everyone, Lord, who is putting their hope and faith in something temporary Lord, we have something permanent, and it's called the promised land. So until, we're, until we get there, Lord, may we continue to share your love. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.